Good afternoon and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm Kim Tibaldo, CEO of the Cancer Support Community. The Wellness Community and Gildas Club have united to become the Cancer Support Community, one of the largest providers of cancer support in the United States and around the world. Our services are offered at over 170 locations worldwide and online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. Well, there are 16 million cancer survivors living in the U.S. today. That's about 5% of the entire population. And despite this, uh, they are one of the most underserved groups in our healthcare system. Survivorship rates, we know, the good news, are, are increasing and people are living longer with cancer. But studies have shown that 60% of cancer survivors report sexual dysfunction after treatment, but 50% did not bring it up to their healthcare team. Many find it a hard topic to talk to their doctors and nurses about, and we certainly understand that. But as you know, our show is called Frankly Speaking About Cancer, and that's exactly what we're going to do today. We're going to get frank and discuss sexual wellness, fertility, and parenthood after cancer with our wonderful guest. With us today, we have Dr. Leslie Shover, who is a good friend of the cancer support community. Dr. Shover is an internationally recognized clinical psychologist and an expert on sexual problems and infertility related to cancer and cancer treatment. She became uh, an assistant professor at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center in 1982, doing clinical work and research on cancer and sexuality. Dr. Schober was a staff psychologist at the Cleveland Clinic Foundation for 16 years before returning to MD Anderson in 1999, where she continued to work with patients and teach behavioral science until she retired in early 2016. She now devotes her full-time work to Will to Love, that is Will, W-I-L-L, the number two, Love, L-O-V-E, an online platform that provides free education, forums, webinars, and resources to cancer patients about sexual wellness, fertility, and parenthood. Welcome back to the show, Dr. Shover. Oh, thank you. It is so great to hear your voice, Kim, and to be talking with you after a long time. Excellent. Well, the pleasure uh, pleasure is certainly ours, and we have a lot that we want to cover uh, in the discussion today. And you really are our uh, uh, our expert. Some call you the doctor, Doctor Ruth of cancer, at least around here. So um, we uh, we have a lot that uh, a lot that we want to cover. But but before we dig into some of the topics that I sort of previewed, Doctor Schober, um, introduce yourselves in a little bit more depth to the audience and those who don't know you. Tell us how you got started working with cancer patients and and where your interest in sexual health and fertility came from, because you obviously have a lot of amazing experience in this area. Well, actually, it kind of happened by accident. I got my Ph.D. in clinical psychology from UCLA way back in 1979 in the age of the dinosaurs. And (laughs) I then did a postdoctoral fellowship for almost two years in sex therapy and sex research because I thought the Masters and Johnson were still fairly new at that time, and I thought Mm. it was a great way to do short-term treatment that could really help people. And I got down to Houston for my first job, and someone in MD Anderson found out I was there and recruited me to work at first just in the Department of Urology with research and clinical work on the sexual side effects of cancer, and I stayed for a little over five years and ended up 
you know, working with the breast and GYN folks as well and learning a lot because not that many people were even talking to cancer patients about sex in those days. And then when I was at the Cleveland Clinic, I was the Mm -hmm. psychologist for the infertility program, and it really struck me how cancer and infertility and sexuality all went together. And when I had the opportunity to return to MD Anderson in 1999, I, I had the great privilege to have a research-based position where my job was to get grant funding and develop new research-based programs to actually try to help people. And that's been really the focus of my career, not just to find out things to publish in journal articles, but to try to find ways to help people prevent or overcome these problems. Mm. Fantastic. What a great uh, what a great background and you really kind of grew up in the field and with the field and really a pioneer uh, in this area of study. Um, Dr. Sherry, I, I should, mentioned... I it. should also yeah. mention that I yeah. now am a two-time breast cancer survivor, but by the time that happened, it was like, oh, okay, it's my turn now. Oh, boy, that really kind of threw you right into the middle of it, didn't it? Wow. Well, we're glad you're well and, and uh, glad you're on the show with us today. So thanks for sharing that as well. Certainly does, um, I'm sure, change your... Uh, experience and view a little bit and maybe even reinforce some of the things that you've been studying and talking about over these years. Um, Yeah, yeah. Uh, Dr. Shover, I mentioned at the beginning of the show that 60% of cancer survivors reported sexual dysfunction after treatment, and maybe that's even an underreported number and and that folks are really shying away from bringing up the topic with their healthcare team. I mean, aside from some of the obvious things, right, these aren't aren't things we want to talk about every day or maybe we don't want to talk about with our doctor. What are some of the other sort of underlying reasons that folks are not reporting this, not talking about this? Yeah, I actually wanted to say something about your statement because you said that 50% of people don't bring up the topic. I think it's actually much lower than that. Maybe Mm. only 10 or 20% of people are the ones who bring up the topic, and Mm. only half of survivors remember anyone from their oncology team ever discussing sex or fertility. So. Um, I think the barriers are, you mentioned one of them, you know, the stigma of bringing up something so personal, especially in the middle of an incredibly busy cancer clinic with all the different topics that oncologists and nurses and all the team has to cover, and, you know, not wanting to feel like you're an ungrateful patient for saying, well, yeah, my cancer may be doing okay, but what about my sex life? So... Those are some of the common reasons, and mm-hmm. healthcare professionals often say they don't bring up the topic because they're afraid it's going to take a long time to deal with it, time that they don't have in their clinic schedule, and they also often don't have much training in this area, so they don't have answers for patients. And we know that doctors and nurses really hate to have questions where they don't have answers. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We, we certainly know. Know that uh, that to be true. I think uh, you know another topic that that uh, I know that the, sometimes the doctors don't want to discuss are the finances of cancer. I think there's some similarities there, right? They don't know the answers, and 
about right. financial matters, so they don't uh, really even want to broach it. And I think some of these uh, some of these topics around uh, you know sexual function and concerns about side effects are are probably uh, you know similar in some ways. Um, so why don't we why don't we drill down a little bit? Obviously, we're talking about the whole range of folks with cancer, all different kinds. Uh, of cancers, but uh, in your your many years of experience in this field, what are some of the common sexual problems for men and women associated with cancer and, and cancer treatment? Well, actually, that's a great question because despite the fact that there are so many different types of cancers and treatments, there are really only a few types of sexual problems that we see most commonly. And for men, of course, we think about erection problems, and for yeah. women... Um, any kind of treatment that that causes menopause to occur suddenly or become more severe can lead to a lot of vaginal dryness and shrinkage and pain with sex. And because of those problems, people, and because of things like fatigue and nausea and all the other things, feeling unattractive, people also, men or women, often say that they feel that their desire for sex has really gone out the window. And it's a little bit less common for either men or women to have problems reaching orgasm, but that sometimes happens too. I mean, if you're not in the mood for sex and it hurts, it's going to be hard to reach an orgasm. And there are some cancer treatments that change orgasm physically, especially for men. Some men end up having uh, the feeling of orgasm, but no semen comes out, or they have very weak, not very intense orgasms. So those are some of the common things we see. And uh, and and what about uh, Dr. Sherber depression? I mean, we certainly know at the cancer support community that a lot of cancer patients deal in their in their cancer journey with uh, with issues around depression. How does that affect sex or one's interest in sex? We don't know what's the chicken or what's the egg, and certainly mm. when you're when you're pretty depressed, low sexual desire is a common symptom. But what we do know is that people who report sexual problems are also more likely to report depression and anxiety and distress. So mm-hmm. we don't know which causes which or whether they're both, you know, related to being in poor physical status, but we do know that they go along together. And we have seen that when we can improve people's sex lives, their distress levels often improve as well. Mm. Mm. It's interesting potential uh, correlation there. Um, Dr. Sherber, a recent study... Uh, by us here at the cancer support community found that um, 20% of prostate cancer survivors said that they had treatment regret, okay? So they they regretted the treatment decision that they made as it related to the treatment of their prostate cancer. That is one in five um, male survivors. And 76% of that same group responding reported erectile dysfunction after uh, after treatment. So what can physicians and other healthcare providers do to lower treatment regret. I mean, is it that there's there are so many different treatment options in prostate? Are we not having meaningful conversations about the potential sexual side effects? Well, I think those data are very similar to several other published studies in recent years, so they don't stick out as unusual, sadly enough. And yes, I think one problem is that with prostate cancer, more than almost any other type of cancer, men are given more choices as to their treatment, but they're also often given some pretty inaccurate expectations, especially things like for a long time, 
um, laparoscopic robotic prostatectomy. There are websites you can go to that say that it's far superior in terms of preserving erections. Or they were saying similar things for a long time about brachytherapy or or, or um, proton beam therapy for prostate cancer. And most of the studies that we have suggest that there's no big advantage of those treatments. And when it comes to any kind of radical prostatectomy, number one, there's only a, a, a minority of men who have great erections beforehand since men are typically somewhat older when they have surgery. And mm-hmm. of that group, only about a quarter of them ever recover erections anywhere near their baseline erections, even if they have the most advanced kind of prostatectomy. And when it comes to radiation therapy, there's no free lunch either because most people still end up with sexual problems. It's just that it takes longer. So with surgery, the problems happen immediately, and a minority of men recover decent erections. And with radiation therapy, they may seem like they're okay for six months or a year or two years, and gradually things go downhill compared to men mm-hmm. of similar age who didn't have radiation therapy. And, of course, mm-hmm. hormone therapy makes everything worse. So right. I, think, I think it's important to give accurate expectations. I think the move mm-hmm. to have more men have active surveillance, if there's not good evidence yep. that active treatment is going to make their lives longer, is important mm-hmm. because active surveillance does seem to make people's lives better, although there is still some sexual problems even associated with active surveillance. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's, uh, let's jump in. Uh, we're going to just grab a quick break here, Dr. Shover. Uh, this is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We're talking to Dr. Leslie Shover about sexual wellness, uh, and also we're going to get to parenthood as well after cancer. We're going to take a quick break. Don't go away. We will be right back. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the AZI Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. People living with breast cancer often find it difficult to ask for help, and many of the people in their lives want to help but don't know how. During National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Cancer Support Community is proud to support Meal Train sponsored by Magnolia, which utilizes Mealtrain.com, a free shared online calendar to streamline the process of giving and receiving meals for families coping with breast cancer. Help us reach our goal of 1,000 new breast cancer-specific meal trains this October. To learn more, visit Mealtrain.com slash MMT and enter the code MagnoliaB 
or visit us at cancersupportcommunity.org. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's episode is being brought to you in part by Azi. I'm Kim Tebaldo. Today we're joined by Dr. Leslie Shover, a clinical psychologist specializing in sexual health and fertility problems. Dr. Shover uh, is, uh, has a, a tremendous amount of, uh, of experience um, in this area, has a lot to share, retired recently from MD Anderson. And now, Dr. Shover, I know you've launched a new project called Will to Love. And again, I want our listeners to know it's Will, W-I-L-L-L-L. Will, the number two, and then love, L-O-V-E. What is uh, Dr. Shover Will to Love, and how is it helping uh, patients and families? Well, Will to Love is actually a digital health startup company. And I mentioned that when I was at MD Anderson, I had grant funding. Three of my big grants were from the National Cancer Institute, and they're what's called small business grants. And that means that they're designed to help you create a product that will create a small business and improve our economy, hopefully. So, so actually, when those grants were finished, it was time to commercialize the interventions that we had put together and tested for men and women. So has is a website, and it's got a lot of free content. We've just started monthly webinars, and we have a really extensive resource section, and we have... Um, we have a blog, and we have forums, um, but kind of the heart of our program is our self-help men's and women's programs, which are available for a modest subscription fee, and actually, starting in about October, we're doing a collaborative study with the American Cancer Society, so people who are willing to be in the study and answer some questionnaires and let us track their web usage can use them for free for up to six months. But these programs cover all cancer sites. They cover sexuality and fertility, and they have a personalized goal-setting system that helps people set priorities and find the places in the program that are going to help them the most. And they include self-help strategies and guidance on medical care options and also video interviews with actual survivors. And since people are shy about sharing their sexual or fertility experiences, I think those are important to help people see that they're not the only ones. And we also have a training portal for oncology health professionals to help them get more comfortable talking about sex and use our self-help programs with patients. And the final thing we're adding in a couple of months is telehealth services. So 
either coaching by a patient advocate or counseling by an expert psychologist. So we're really trying to have a one-stop solution to the fact that there are so few resources out there for these problems. Mm, wow, that's fascinating. Um, I, uh, I've heard that the Will to Love Project has a new campaign called Bring It Up. I think we get the word right. here a little bit. But is that the study that you're referencing or is that a different project? That's a different project. That's just okay. a public health campaign that we that we sponsored in honor of launching most of our services this summer. And it's got its own website. So it's it, the website is bringitupsexandcancer.com, and the only period in there is the dot before the com. And what it does is it provides three-step action plans for patients and also for healthcare professionals. And the goal is to make it easier to talk about sexuality and fertility as part of cancer care and also to manage problems effectively because a lot of times somebody manages to bring it up, but then nothing happens. There's no referral given. There's no treatment plan. And so we want to advance the field and get people to manage these problems more effectively. So I know, uh, Leslie, you mentioned earlier that a lot of times the doctor doesn't want to bring this topic up because maybe they don't have the time, they're really pressed in these visits, maybe they don't have all the answers and they don't want to broach it. Um, but are there, are there other cultural reasons, societal reasons why we don't want to have these conversations? Is there, you know, are, are these conversations being had more frequently in other, in Europe or in other c- countries or cultures? Or is there anything about our, you know, sort of history or even how we educate about sex in the U.S. that you think kind of filters into the lack of conversation here? Well, maybe in Northwestern Europe, like the Netherlands or the Scandinavian countries, they do a little bit better than us. Mm -hmm. But because Mm -hmm. it's a medical setting, they still have a lot of the same problems. Mm. And what I see is that our culture is still dividing sex into hot, glamorous, porn-type sex and taboo, you shouldn't talk about it, sex. So talking about sex in a medical context, talking about sex when you're a 66-year-old woman or a 74-year-old man is still not considered normative. And also, if the health professional and the patient are different in gender, but maybe even more so in in an background or religion or age or sexual orientation, so one is gay and one is straight, those are things that I think increase the barriers um, and make it even more difficult to talk about the topic comfortably. Got it. Got it. Um, Dr. Sherby, you talked a little bit about through the Will to Love Project, the, the, the Bring It Up uh, campaign. So let's let's get down to brass tacks for a minute. Coach, so you're talking to a patient today. Coach them, give them the words, give them the tools for what to say to their doctor, how to bring these questions up, whether it's responding to something that they're experiencing or even preemptively wanting to understand how to handle these issues. Give give, give us the script. Well, the three 
two-step action plan for patients. The first step is ask for some extra time and do that if you can when you're making your appointment or at the very beginning of your appointment because the average oncology visit is between 13 and 16 minutes to discuss everything and to have a physical exam. So if you don't make time and say, I have a special topic I want to discuss today, chances are it's going to get passed over or the doctor or nurse is going to be walking out the door while you're trying to get their attention. The next thing is to prepare uh, one or two very specific questions. Like if you're just getting a treatment plan, you might say, I want to know if these different treatment choices have different impacts on fertility or sexuality. Or if you already have a problem, you might say, you know, ever since my cancer treatment, I've noticed I have an erection problem, and I'd really like to get some resources to deal with that. And the third step is don't leave without some kind of next step because that's what often happens. Everybody discusses it and they say, oh, well, maybe next time you come in or I don't know, I'll have to look into that. Or sometimes you get a dismissal response like, listen, you know, I treated your cancer. I'm not a sex therapist. But you have to be assertive and say, you know, this problem is important to me. So is there a clinic in this health system that could help me? Or do you know of a GYN or urologist in the community or a mental health professional who has some expertise that you could send me to? Will my insurance cover it? Those are some ways that I think patients can be more assertive and try to get some kind of a treatment plan, you know, getting built. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, Dr. Shover, do you see, and I know this is kind of a broad question and maybe, you know, hard to, to uh, you know, to, to answer and drill down on, and we're getting up to our, uh, our break in a couple minutes, but do you see a difference for, let's say, you know, ethnic minorities on this topic? Are there cultural barriers, religious barriers within communities that really um, prevent them from talking openly about these topics? Yes, I do think there are some, but I will say the biggest difference that we see in research is that men are more likely to get information about sex than women are um, from their oncology team. But yes, any kind of minority culture, whether it's African American, Hispanic American, or Asian American, tends to have, you know, more taboos about sharing sexual information in a medical setting. And sometimes it's the practitioner who may come from one of those communities who also is more uncomfortable than average about bringing up the topic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I know that, um, uh, you know, I know that, for example, there's a lot of stigma even around cancer in, let's say, for example, the Muslim community. Um, sure. So I imagine this is a topic that would be particularly difficult to broach again for certain religious groups, let's say. And maybe especially difficult for women in cultures that don't necessarily endorse a woman having sexual pleasure. So that a man, it's okay for a man to ask about erection problems, but if a woman is having a problem, unless it's because she's not fulfilling her duty to her husband, it may be difficult to bring up. And I'm not saying that's necessarily true in in Muslim cultures. It's just true in many cultures. Right, right, right. And again, certainly you've got the, you know, the cultural issues layered in with the, you know, different religious issues. I imagine there are also generational issues 
um, that, you know, that play into some of these conversations. So uh, it certainly is, uh, you know, complex and uh, and multi-layered challenge. Um, I just want to ask you uh, quickly, because we're getting up to our break in about a minute here, but um, we're talking a lot about the, the, the dialogue and conversation with the, the medical team and the physician. But I imagine that the discussion with your partner, if you have a partner, is equally as important. If not more so, because you can can always find an outside medical or mental health professional, but if you're in a committed relationship, you really want to make things work with your partner. And there's a lot of vulnerabilities for the patient, worrying that they're no longer attractive to the partner or that they're care is a burden, and for the partner not wanting to hurt the patient physically or hurt their feelings, sometimes fear of loss makes partners um, kind of flee emotionally and, and stay away from any intimate contact. And I also notice that when men end up with erection problems, they often are not as, as good about expressing affection because mm-hmm. affection for many traditional men, you know, is a part of initiating sex. And if they don't yeah. think they can quote unquote perform, they right. don't reach out. Yeah, it's it's, it's uh, all part of the, uh, the, the overall experience. Um, we're going to take a quick break here. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm Kim Tebaldo. Today, we're talking with Dr. Leslie Shover about sexual wellness, and we're also going to talk about uh, fertility and parenthood after cancer. We're going to take a quick break. Don't go away. We will be right back. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Cancer, it's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the healthcare process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Your life, your health, your network. Voice America Health & Wellness.
You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's episode is being brought to you in part by Genentech and Celgene. Uh, I am your host, Kim Tibaldo, and we are joined today by Dr. Leslie Shover. Um, Dr. Shover, today we see that people are diagnosed with cancer at, uh, sometimes now we're seeing at a much younger age. Um, we now, in our society, see people having children at, at sometimes an older age. So how does this affect really fertility and, and, and parenthood options for patients? Well, obviously, that means that more and more people are diagnosed and treated for cancer before they've finished having all the children that they want to have. And in several studies, one of the early ones I did um, confirmed over and over, about 75% of people who are diagnosed, who are childless, say that they would like to have children in the future. So cancer isn't something that knocks out people's interest in having children. And in fact, grief over infertility can last as long as 10 years after successful cancer treatment. Mm. So it is a big problem. So let's, so let's, uh, let's talk about this issue. When should a patient be discussing their thoughts about family planning, parenthood, having kids with their partner and with their doctor? What is important to know here? It's important to get it on the table as early as possible. As soon as there's a cancer diagnosis and you're going through testing and treatment options, that's the time to discuss if there's any possibility that the treatments proposed are going to damage fertility for men or women because the longer you have to plan fertility preservation and to get, unfortunately, the money together that you need to get a referral to a specialist to find out more about your exact options, the better off you're going to be. Okay, so let's drill down on that a little bit, Dr. Chauvin, explained a little bit more for our audience. So say that I'm, you know, diagnosed with breast cancer, I'm still of childbearing years, I still want to have a kid or two, um, I'm going to be starting chemotherapy. You're saying that I need to have this conversation with my doctor before I start that chemotherapy. Yes, and in fact, there are some studies that suggest that if you're not having neoadjuvant chemo before your surgery, that it's better to refer women with breast cancer to a reproductive endocrinologist, an infertility specialist, before their breast surgery, because that also gives them more time, maybe time if they want to freeze, women may want to freeze um, eggs or embryos or pieces of tissue from their ovary, and if they freeze eggs or embryos, it means going through a cycle of in vitro fertilization and taking hormones, and that, even with modern techniques, takes a, a, usually 10 days at the very least and two weeks or sometimes even three, depending on how it's done. So if women were referred before their surgery, some of them had time to do two cycles instead of one, which meant mm. they could freeze more eggs and embryos because you don't always have a lot that are successful. So um, those are options for women. And for men, mm-hmm. men have an easier task because to bank sperm, which is the most usual fertility preservation for men, you have to 
collect uh, sperm by ejaculating, usually, you know, under some sterile conditions in the lab. And even if you just collect one sample with modern fertility techniques, that might be enough later on if frozen and thawed to create a baby with a partner's eggs. But it's better, if possible, to collect several samples and have more to work with for the future if sperm counts and motility don't recover later on after cancer treatment. So time is of the essence and, and you know, there aren't always outside of big cities um, specialists who are easy to find and, and easy to get on track to decide if you're going to do all these things and to get them in motion. Got it. Understood. So you talked about freezing eggs, freezing sperm. Are there other, uh, you talked about really planning and talking about that. And I, I have to say, Dr. Shover, I'm still surprised sort of in this day and age when this, you know, for those of us kind of in the cancer world, this seems like common knowledge. I'm still sort of surprised uh, that this is, you cannot expect that the doctor's going to prompt this conversation. You cannot expect that this is going to be offered to all patients. Really, I think making it all the more important for the patient um, to really be empowered and educated and, and, and knowledgeable about this and to be the one that's really driving this. Do you agree? I do. And repeated surveys have suggested that oncologists, a lot of them still cherry pick, like, oh, I'll, I'll mention it to this woman because she's childless, but this one already has two kids, so I'll skip that part. Mm-hmm. Or I'll mention it to this man because he's engaged, but this guy is gay, so I'm not going to mention it to him. So, you know, instead of letting the patient be the, the arbiter of whether it's important to them, sometimes physicians or other members of the team think that it's their job to to choose, which I think is very wrong. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, surveys as recently as several years ago suggested that half of people who were eligible to preserve fertility did not remember being informed about it. Wow. Wow. So we still have a bit of a ways to go on this. So uh, let's let's talk for a minute then. Dr. Shover, about uh, about the cost of these fertility preservation methods. Can a patient expect that this will be covered by their health insurance? Are these processes um, expensive? Is this a big financial burden for people? It is a big financial burden, especially putting in the context of these are young people who are facing mm-hmm. probably some big medical copay bills for their cancer treatment. So a cycle of IVF um, might be roughly about $11,000 by the Mm. time you get through all the drugs and the costs (laughs) and freezing eggs means going, freezing, uh, I'm sorry, freezing ovarian tissue means going through a laparoscopy and harvesting and storing the tissue. So I think it's a fairly similar price range or maybe even a little bit more. For men, sperm banking isn't quite as expensive. Maybe it might cost between 500 and 1000 to collect the samples, but there are ongoing costs for men or women for ongoing storage of frozen eggs or sperm or embryos, too. And unfortunately, there are only a couple of states that mandate that private insurers cover these procedures. Rhode Island just passed an innovative new law, and I believe Connecticut also now has some laws. But even states, the very few states that 
that mandate that insurers cover in vitro fertilization, um, fertility preservation wasn't wasn't factored in because mm. the criterion was you were supposed to be infertile for a year before you could have IVF. So the laws need to be changed and updated, and and a lot of advocacy groups are working very hard to try to make that happen. Are there other resources for patients aside from their health insurance? Are there uh, grants? Are there foundations? Are there other there are, uh, resources available to at least help defray some of these costs? There are, and on Wilt's Love in our resources section, we list all of them that I'm aware of. Livestrong has a program. There's a program called Vernus Purse that is part of Reprotec. Um, we're going to be having um, our webinar on August the 16th, and Alice Krisky, who um, also started her own um, advocacy group, is going to be one of our speakers, and she will also be talking about that topic. Mm. Dr. Schover, the tell us the website for Will to Love. It's www. W I L L the number two and then love L O V E dot C O M dot com. Great will to love with the number two uh, dot com. And um, before we get to our next break here, um, Doctor Schober, let's uh, p- perhaps for those just joining the show now, just tell our listeners what what the website is, what will to love is, and uh, if they were to go there, what kinds of information and, and resources might they find. So Will to Love is a digital health company offering online help for cancer-related problems with sex or fertility. And we have a lot of free content that's just open to everyone um, when you go to our website, including those resource links and a blog and monthly webinars that we record and have on site and forums. And we also have self-help programs that are pretty intensive for men or women that are on a subscription basis where you can pay a small monthly fee and access them. And we are soon going to be also offering um, telehealth coaching and counseling by video conference. Um, we're training our, our clinicians now to get ready. So, Dr. Schover, we've got uh, just about a minute until our uh, our break here, but let's do a little quick coaching for our audience. So let's say you are a younger person, you are still of childbearing age, you want to have a family, you've just been diagnosed with cancer. What's the conversation? What are the questions that you should be asking your doctor? Well, first of all, are any of the treatments you're proposing or thinking about ones that are likely to damage my fertility? And that could be chemotherapy, it could be radiation or surgery to the pelvis, it could be, we don't know even that much about some of the newer biological treatments, but if there's a chance that fertility could be damaged, then the question is, can you refer me to talk to somebody about my options to preserve my fertility before cancer treatment begins. And that might be to a sperm bank for a man, it might be to a reproductive endocrinologist for a man or a woman, woman or to a urologist for a man. And just quickly, Dr. Shriver, to your point, I think that you know we're talking a lot about immunotherapy, um, but you're saying we really don't know the impact of immunotherapy on fertility quite yet. 
No, I've I've not seen a single study on it. Now, I may have missed a couple of recent ones, but we I've seen a couple of very small ones suggesting that it can damage sexual function, but I don't even think the mechanism is clear. So Wow. wow. So these yeah. are these are areas we really need a lot more knowledge in. Wow, no kidding. Boy, that's a fascinating, fascinating area. This is frankly speaking about cancer. I'm Kim Tibaldo. We're talking with Dr. Leslie Shover about sexual wellness and also parenthood uh, and fertility issues after cancer. We're gonna take a quick break. We have a lot more to discuss with Dr. Shover. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the Azi Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. People living with breast cancer often find it difficult to ask for help, and many of the people in their lives want to help, but don't know how. During National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Cancer Support Community is proud to support Meal Trains sponsored by Magnolia, which utilizes Mealtrain.com, a free shared online calendar to streamline the process of giving and receiving meals for families coping with breast cancer. Help us reach our goal of 1,000 new breast cancer-specific meal trains this October. To learn more, visit Mealtrain.com slash MMT and enter the code MAGNOLIAB or visit us at cancersupportcommunity.org. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. 
Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today we are joined by Dr. Leslie Schover, a clinical psychologist and founder of the new digital startup, Will to Love. We are really uh, uh, learning a ton from you, Dr. Schover. It's been a very enlightening, uh, enlightening conversation. I know in our last segment we were talking a little bit about uh, of family planning and fertility preservation and really, I guess, in some ways, the ideal scenario that you know you're going to enter into treatment, you do some proactive planning, um, you know you want to have a family, you're, you're pretty set on that. But um, my understanding is that that's, you know, more the exception these days rather than the rule. So what about folks who have completed cancer treatment, whether whether they have or have not done any, um, you know, sort of preservation uh, I imagine there's still probably some real challenges about family planning and deciding whether you do want to go ahead and have a family after treatment. There's a lot. Even people who have stored eggs or sperm or embryos sometimes have recovered some fertility and have the dilemma of should they just try to get pregnant naturally or should they use what they've stored and incur all those extra costs of fertility treatment. But there are a lot of concerns that people have about how safe is it as a woman to get pregnant after you've had cancer. And even with breast cancer, um, after uh, the first couple of years have passed, there's no evidence that having a pregnancy after cancer promotes a recurrence. But a lot of women are still told not to even consider getting pregnant. Um, 6,000 women a year are diagnosed while they're pregnant, by the way, and a mm. lot of them could still have healthy babies and have adequate cancer treatment if they go to a specialized cancer center but are sometimes given advice in the community that they have to terminate their pregnancy to save their lives. But a lot of people are, you know, they, they may know that they have impaired fertility, some young women have a window of time when they have menstrual cycles again, and they probably could get pregnant, but they're due to have menopause much earlier than normal. Instead of age 51, the average, they might get menopausal in their late 30s or mid-30s, and so are they going to go ahead and try to quickly have kids at a younger age than they might have normally. So that's a dilemma that a lot of people face. And also there are issues of maybe deciding that the way to be a parent is to adopt or to use a donated sperm or egg or embryo. And those bring up a lot of emotional issues. Partners don't always agree on what's the best way to go. Adoption Mm. after cancer is not a snap. It's not easy for anyone to adopt these days, but adopting as a cancer survivor has some extra barriers. So those are all issues as well as just dealing with the grief of damaged fertility over time and coming to terms with it. So at Will to Love in our self-help programs, we actually have sections on all of those issues, which is kind of unusual. Most most programs just focus on fertility preservation. It's mm, fascinating. You know, Leslie, we did do a show uh, here, it's been a little while back now, but on um, women who find out they have cancer when they are pregnant. And if I do uh, if I do, uh, you know, recall certainly that there are certain women who can and do get chemotherapy and treatment while they are pregnant and that there's no 
higher rate of any birth defects in those children than in, in the general population. So, and I think that that's a, a stunning, you know, frankly, stunning to a lot of our uh, yeah. a lot of our listeners. You know, when women are pregnant, right? They, you know, they don't uh, they don't have caffeine, they don't have wine, they don't have sushi, they don't, you know, and suddenly you find out that there are some women who are getting chemotherapy while they're pregnant. But the body is pretty amazing in its ability to to uh, to protect that baby during during pregnancy. So, um, yeah, I think there's a, you know, certainly very, uh, that was a very enlightening, uh, show that we did on, on, um, on frankly speaking about cancer. Um, I just want to, if folks are just jumping in, um, maybe joining the show now and listening in, uh, Leslie, I'd love for you to tell them a little bit more about will to love about the bring it up campaign. Where can folks find this information? What can they find, uh, on the website? I know there's a, there's a three-step action plan and the bring it up campaign and you're really trying to encourage folks to be educated and empowered um, on these topics. So let's maybe do just a quick summary of the conversation and of the resources um, that that we've been mentioning throughout the show. Sure. Well, to find all the resources on Will to Love, you just go to www.will2wordlove.com and you'll be able to see all of our free resources and make a decision about whether you are interested in some of our subscription resources. And as I mentioned, starting, I believe, in in late September or October, we're doing a study with the American Cancer Society where people will be able to use our self-help subscriptions for free if they're willing to participate in research. And the Bring It Up campaign has a separate website, so it's just, you know, HTTPS and then the little colon and two backslashes. And then the website is bringitupsexandcancer.com. And the only period in there is before the com. So, mm-hmm. and, and that has the three-step action plan on how to make it easier to talk about sexuality or fertility with your oncology team. Excellent, excellent. We certainly want to um, encourage our folks to uh, check out those resources. And then just quickly again, uh, Leslie, if someone has been diagnosed with cancer, um, they're going into their doctor, what are the questions they should ask? What do they need to know before going in to that appointment? And, and, you know, how do we encourage folks to know that they certainly have the right to talk about these issues and ask about these issues and find resources? I mean, these are important quality of life uh, issues. And we certainly know in our research that in some, in some ways, in many ways, the quality of life is, is more important than anything for patients as they're dealing with treatment, uh, you know, and, and beyond cancer. Yeah, and there are several surveys of survivors that have found that when you ask about unmet needs, sex is in the top five. So it's something that often does not get handled well. I think it's really important to be empowered, to be assertive, and to realize that you have a right to your sexual health and not to wait for someone on your oncology team to bring up the topic of sex or fertility. You know, be willing to bring it up yourself. Ask for some extra time and say you have a special question that you want to discuss and prepare, you know, some kind of a reasonably short and specific question ahead of time. And mm-hmm. if you get a dismissive answer like, I don't know, or that's not my job, then ask for a referral to someone who can help you. Mm-hmm. And really, you know, knowing that, that those resources really are, uh, you know, out there in the community. Um, Dr. Right. Leslie Schober, it's been just wonderful having you on the show today. I think our listeners have probably learned uh, a great deal, and um, I hope are feeling more educated and empowered 
uh, on these issues. We do hope that folks will visit the Will to Love uh, website. That's W-I-L-L, the number two, Love. Dot com. A lot of great free resources available to you. Also some uh, 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 subscription resources available for some modest fees as well. So if folks want to take a look at that. Um, I also want to remind folks about the resources we have here at the Cancer Support Community. Uh, we are a nonprofit with a, with a wide range of free resources for patients and families. We have 47 centers around the country where we provide support groups, educational programs, nutrition, exercise, stress reduction. These programs are free of charge to people with all cancers at any stage of their illness uh, and also for their family members and loved ones. I'd encourage you to visit our website at cancersupportcommunity.org. You can find a host of educational resources. You can find a list of our wonderful uh, affiliates around the country on that website as well. We also have a helpline that's staffed by trained licensed mental health professionals. If you want to grab a pen and write that number down, it is 888-793-9355. And you can call that number right now and speak to one of our counselors. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm Kim Tebaldo. Thanks for joining us today. Until next time, be well, do well, live well. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org.